0: The words we use are very powerful and they can affect change in people, they can move people, they can form and create events. But what really makes the difference in in our words is the energy that we project through the words that we use. When we're talking, we're projecting our energy. And it's the energy that makes the difference. It's the energy that moves people, and it's the energy that shapes events. And the energy of our speech is composed not only uh, from what we say, but also from how we say it, and particularly from our tone of voice, because our tone of voice really gives away the the inner energy from which it's coming. And that's important to know, not only when we're speaking, but also when we're listening to people, to listen not only to the words that they're saying, but to the tone of voice with which they're saying it. Our piece of Gemara, our Sugi, revolves around a piece of Tanakh, which was one of the black marks in Jewish history. Uh, a terrible period of time at the end of, of Sefer Shoftim, uh, and three prokem at the end of Sefer Shoftim d- uh, describe the case of Pilegish Begiva. The concubine, a concubine is the halachic equivalent of a common-law wife. The concubine, of Giva. And the three chapters starts with the statement, melech At that time there was no king. This is in, in the, among the Jewish people. This is after Yeshua's died, before the time of Shmuel and Shaul and King David. Afterwards, is that period of the Shoftim, which is the time where Melech Ein be and it's sandwiched between those statements, because the very last sentence in Sefer Shoftim at the end of the story of Pilegesh Begiva is again by Ami Mahen, AymelIrael, Ishay This was a period of time where there was no king in Israel. Each person was doing exactly as they wanted. And sandwiched between those two phrases is the story of Pilegesh Begiva, where a man living in the southern part of Ephraim, a little bit south of Betel married as as a concubine he took a concubine a pilegish, from Bethlehem in in Yehuda they're living together in Ephraim and she their relationship goes sour we'll see what what exactly happens and she leaves him and goes home to her father's house in Lechem. he afterwards when he calms down is upset with what's happened and he goes to Lechem Yehuda to try and find her he goes there the father receives him very well and there's a very entertaining, few Psukim the the in, in the paper, describes that they, they really had a good time together, the father-in-law and the son-in-law, and they eat and they drink, and he persuades him to stay a little longer, they're really getting on well, everything's going fine. And then eventually the time comes, he's got to leave, the father-in-law again tries to persuade him to stay, eventually he has to leave and go back on the, on the road, back to his place in Ephraim. Uh, The father-in-law says, it's a ready afternoon, you won't make it in one day, you're going to have to sleep over, rather sleep over here and go in the morning. And the son-in-law says, it's time, I've I've got to get going, we'll sleep on the way. They pass Yerushalayim, the the young man who's with him, is accompanied, he says, let's go into Yerushalayim. At that time, Yerushalayim was Yevus, it was occupied by non-Jewish tribes, and he said, I'm not staying the night there, let's go and stay a little further. And they come to a place called Giva, which is exactly halfway between Beit Lechem and Beit El. Uh, We don't know exactly where it is today, but we know roughly where it is. It's it's north of Jerusalem, 6, 10 kilometers north of of Yerushalayim. There is a place called Givah. It's a Jewish town. He says, let's go into the Jewish town and find somewhere to stay. Eventually, a man meets them, takes them into into his house, and they spend the night there. Similar to the story of Lot and Sodom, the people of Givah gather around the house. They want the man for uh, homosexual purposes. The host refuses and eventually they get hold of the concubine and they gang rape the concubine and she dies from the experience. He takes her body back to Bethlehem Yehuda, and he is so furious. The, the man now whose concubine has been murdered and gang raped, he chops her body up into 12 pieces and sends a piece to each tribe. They didn't have social media at those times, otherwise he would have put it on Facebook. He wanted to make a point. The tribes of Israel were so furious that such a thing could have happened so that they declare civil war on the tribe of Binyamin. They believe the whole of Binyamin is Im- Im- implicated in this and they declare war on the tribe of Binyamin. They lose a lot of people, but eventually they virtually exterminate the tribe of Binyamin. They go to great lengths, and they're very interesting halakhic issues as to how they repopulate B- Binyamin with Benjaminites because they were nearly wiped out completely. That, that's how serious this, this event was. So what's all that got to do with... Um, and, and then just after that, the Ma'aral points out, the very next Posuk is the first Posuk of Shmuel. There was a man called Elkanah, who was to be the father of Shmuel, from HaRefrayim, from that same region, out of the chaos of pilegish begivah comes the birth of the period of the Shoftim and of the Melachim, of the kings of Israel. What's all this got to do with Gittin and with Asugia? So you'll see the, the stream of consciousness that, that, that the Gomorrah works with. It's actually a good example of how the Gomorrah goes from subject to subject, from topic to topic. It seems almost random, and yet there's a theme in it as well. It starts with Rabbi Evyata sending, Rabbi Evyata was an Amora in Eretz Israel. He sends a psak to Rav Chista in Bavel. And he says, the Gittin that come from Bavel to Eretz Israel, the Shaliyach does not have to say it was signed and written in front of me. Because we trust that you guys know what you're doing and that this would have been written properly says Rav Yosef, who's Rav so, Since when do we have to listen to Rav Since when is he a big expert on Gittin? In fact, I'll tell you something, that when he sent a letter once, says Rav Yosef, to Rav to Yehuda, and quoted a posuk in the letter... He didn't make a line like we do in the Sefer Torah and Bazuzas. We make a line and we quote a posuk. He didn't know the law, the din of Rav Yitzchak, that if you quote more than three words from the Torah, you have to do siyutut, you have to make a line. And he wrote it without a line. So you see, Rav Yitzchak is not such a halachic expert. <coughs> Says Abaya, a very important comment. So somebody didn't know Rav Yitzchak's law. Does that, does, is that a flaw in his character? Does that mean that he's not another, a great human being? This is important for our times. The Gomorrah is saying, what Abai is saying is, lack of information is not an impediment to, to human greatness. You don't know something, You don't nobody can know everything, so there's something you didn't know. So what? And certainly today, you can look it up on Google. There's no, there's no greatness in knowing, and there's no smallness in not knowing. He says, If you want to say he couldn't work something out, that would be a problem. Somebody doesn't have the lomdas to reach a conclusion from the Gemara and to come to a Psak based on the Gemara, to interpret a Chazal, to understand the main property of Gemara properly and to extrapolate it correctly. Then I understand he's not an Adam Godel, He's an Amaretz. I, I get it. But he doesn't know something. There's a piece of information he's lacking. That's not terribly important. And furthermore, says uh, Abaya, Rabbi Aviyata, Rabbi had a conversation with Eliyohan Novi and the Rebunah Shalom is learning Rabbi Aviyata's Torah. Don't dismiss Rabbi Aviyata because he didn't know Rabbi Yitzchak's halacha. seems the Rebunah wasn't very worried that Rabbi Aviyata didn't know one particular halacha of, of, of Rabbi Yitzchak. And tells the story where there are two views as to what this Pelegish begiver did to damage the relationship. What exactly happened there? And what happened there was a very small thing. There was a fly in the soup, or some people say, there was a Machlokas, Rabbi Viata, Rabbi Jonas on whether there was a fly in the soup or there was a hare in the in the soup. And he got angry. What's he angry with? That she's not careful enough, that she doesn't care enough about what she's doing for him. She's cooking for him in the kitchen. That should be her focus, and she allows a fly in. So the one says, even the fly, although the fly, couldn't, she couldn't really control that, uh, Rabbi Yonison says, no, the fly, he wouldn't have got all excited about. it. What he got excited about was a hair. That she she should have should have prevented. Like you're in a restaurant and there's a you find a hair in the food, you're not very happy. And he wasn't very happy. Um, and then they they ask, what did um, Rabbi Yotam meets meet her and says, What was the Ribbonish doing? And he says, Rabbi, the Ribbonish was learning this parsha, Pilegish me and he says, and what did Hashem say? Was it a fly or was it a hair? It would be quite interesting. If Hashem was learning, we'll have a chance to find out. So he says, Hashem was learning, and he says, Rabbiata says this, and Rabbi Yonison says this. There are two views. Says Rabbi Viotta, that's absurd. Two views on the Metsius. We're not arguing about a halakhic thing, we're arguing about what happened. So, did Hashem not know what happened? Was it a fly or was it a hare? Surely, surely he knows. So the Gemara answers, Elio answers, says, no, they're both true. There was a fly and there was a hare. He didn't get angry about the fly, but he did get angry about the hare. That's what the Rebunetion was doing at that time. And as a result of that, the Gemara says, um, always be careful not to cause fear in your home. And that's a principle that applies not only in a home, but applies in all situations of leadership. If you're leading a team of people or you're in a business, be careful that you don't disrupt emotional safety. Because if people don't feel emotional safety... Uh, all sorts of things happen. You don't get the truth. You don't get honesty. People withdraw. People disengage. There are all sorts of negative things happen when people don't feel enough emotional safety to be able to confront you with something that might be uncomfortable and, and, and something you don't want to hear. Because track the origin of Pilei this terrible story. It's worth reading these three chapters at the end of Shoftim to understand fully how terrible the story was. And track what triggered it. Go right to the trigger of the trigger of the trigger. It wasn't just that that she allowed a a hair into the soup or she allowed a fly into the soup. He lost his temper. He got angry. She left the house because she couldn't take the anger. The anger is what caused it all and therefore always be careful. If you want to say something to, to your wife because you think she's not careful enough with the cashless or with the health or whatever, then you say it, but in a nice calm way. In fact, three consequences happen if there's fear in a home. They can be gilu riot, They can be improprietary because a woman maybe has a situation where she's supposed to go to the mikveh and it's freezing cold and she can't get to the mikveh and she's afraid to tell her husband that she didn't go to the mikveh. So that's what happens when there's not emotional safety, there's fear. So she doesn't tell him and they have relations and she hasn't been to the mikveh, terrible thing all these things can happen. This that we say in, in that you're supposed to say three things before Shabbos. Isatim, have you taken my have you made the eruvim? Now light the candles. Don't say them in anger, say them calmly. so that they will be accepted. Omar Ravashi Ravashi says, and this links back to the beginning of the sugya. I've never heard this before from Rabbi Babachana, but that doesn't mean I didn't do it. I figured it out myself. So again, we've got this idea, there are certain things you don't have to quote from the Mishnabrura, from the Shulchanan, certain things you can work out yourself, and you need to keep those things that you can work out yourself, and he worked it out himself. And Tosfus goes into how we know that, that what she did wrong was not Znut, although the posuk in Shoftim says she was mezana, which means she, she was unfaithful. And Tosfus explains how we know it wasn't that she was actually unfaithful. It was just this argument over the soup, over the fly in the soup or the air in the soup. That's what caused the, the whole issue. Um there's, there's a beautiful Maharal, which we won't have a chance to go into, where the Maharal talks about the fact that Hashem created the world with Seder, with system and with rules and, and laws. They're physical law, there's laws of physics, laws of nature, laws of psychology, laws of sociology, laws of politics and governance. He built the world with rules and laws. And that's part of the divine aspect of the world, of the rules by which the world functions. And when we move out of those rules and we function outside of those rules, we get chaos. And that's why the Maharal says it says, this is when there was no king, there was no government, and things became chaotic. And the Ribbonish was learning, Parasha's Pilegish Begiva, to re-establish a system of rule in, in society. And we see it in our times as well in many different ways. People need structure. Open offices, which was such a, an interesting experiment and has many advantages, but people are finding they need a place. They like to come to work and know that they've got a place. They've got a, they want to come to work and have to look around for a place to sit and every day it's a different place. They like structure. Uh, and the question of working from home or coming to the office and having managers and, uh, yeah, and, when we, and we can redesign the business environment, but people do need a structure because the revolution created the world with a structure. And when one gets angry... One does things outside of the structure. That's why one usually regrets what one did or said in anger. Because you do things that are undisciplined. You do things that you would never do if you were in a disciplined frame of mind. And you've removed yourself from the system of order that Hashem imposes on you and on the world. In the moments of anger, there's no order. You do things that are chaotic. And people respond chaotically. She runs off and goes back to Beit Lechem. Everybody responds when you, when you trigger chaos, you trigger chaos with anger. And anger is a tone of voice. So if in the tone of your voice there's anger, you trigger chaos. Chaos in yourself and chaos in everybody around you. And that's going out of the, of the seder alam of the way of, of the world. And so it's really important to, to be meticulous, not only about what we say, but about the inner place. What are we feeling when we're saying it? Because people will pick up what you're feeling. You can't hide that. If you're feeling anger, people will pick up the anger. If you're feeling calm, people will pick up the calm. And the idea of seder, of having an order and a system and a discipline and a routine in one's life is to enable, we spoke a a week or two ago about equanimity, to be able to enable balance and a sense of evenness, which when one is angry in a moment of anger, one removes oneself from that sense of equanimity and one removes oneself from the divine intent by which the world was created.